Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Dr. Chris Miller, Professor of International History at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, where he lectures on global economic competition as well as China and Russia. He is also the author of uh, the great recent book, Chip War, uh, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, a fascinating work that spans from the invention of the microchip and integrated circuit in 1947, uh, and the increasingly intense war between Washington and Beijing over supremacy of a technology key to global uh, economic and military power. Uh, he is also the Gene Kirkpatrick Visiting Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the Eurasia Director at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Chris, thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, the late Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. Before we get started, our daily coverage is sponsored by Bell. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our wider coverage of strategy, ultra-intelligence, and communications, sponsors our command and control coverage, and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's recent annual meeting was sponsored by Safran and Leonardo DRS. Uh, Chris, thanks very much uh, again for joining us. Uh, we're speaking a couple of hours after President Biden and China's Xi Jinping uh, met for three hours at the G20 meeting in uh, Bali. Uh, this was their first face-to-face -face -face meeting since Biden became president and Xi was uh, coronated for a third unprecedented third term. Uh, they pledged to work together where they can, for example, on climate while disagreeing elsewhere, as the president said, no kumbaya. Uh, but before we get to sort of the nature of the economic competition between uh, these two nations, or rather what the next steps uh, are, um, timing uh, in life is everything, and the timing of your book couldn't have been more perfect. You were illustrating uh, the nature of this uh, competition as Washington was deliberating the CHIPS Act uh, that passed, which constitutes the largest investment in U.S. technology uh, since the height of the Cold War, certainly, the CHIPS Act. Uh, and I just returned from uh, Syracuse, where I lectured at the Maxwell School, and the big buzz was the Micron uh, factory, uh, chip factory, that's going to open there and employ about 9,000 uh, New Yorkers, certainly big news for a town uh, that uh, lost uh, a lot of industry over the past couple of decades. I want to get your take on the central premise of the book, that supremacy uh, of the semiconductor in design and manufacturing is central to superpower status. While this should be incredibly self-evident, make your case. Well, if you look at the key transitions in military technology over the past uh, 75 years, what you'll find is that microelectronics are at, at the core of all of them. Um, and what has made the U.S. military position possible to sustain over this time and kept the U.S. as the world's leading military is not that it's built more ships or uh, had larger armies uh, than its adversaries, but that it's been able to field more capable systems, largely thanks to the sensing, communications, and computing uh, uh, capabilities that, that semiconductors have enabled. And whether it's the first chips that were put in the guidance computers of intercontinental ballistic missiles during the early Cold War, or the types of chips that are making possible um, uh, semi-autonomous military systems uh, today, over the past half century, the U.S. military has invested as heavy as anyone uh, in semiconductors, in 
both supporting their development, um, but also in applying them to defense systems. And if you look at the U.S. military strategy today, as well as China's military strategy, both countries are pouring resources into semiconductors and the capabilities that they enable, betting that whichever country is able to uh, best apply computing power to its military will end up with the world's most powerful military. And so uh, from Washington to Beijing, I think there's a growing realization that actually semiconductors are at the core, not only of economic power or technological power, but also military power. Um, you do an extraordinary job uh, in talking about the history and the nature uh, of uh, the competition, the, the traitorous eight, uh, the, the technology uh, required to print uh, at literally an atomic uh, level, and what that means for future capabilities, right, as we're looking uh, to tap greater artificial intelligence or even quantum computing uh, power will depend on these extraordinary combination of technologies. I love in particular, you know, you talking about how uh, they took a Zeiss uh, microscope lens and flipped it around in order to be able to do some of the uh, lithography. The U.S. originated this technology and is still central to it. But from its earliest days, it was also a globalized uh, industry. The Taiwanese have been in the game for a long time. The Japanese have been in it, the British, uh, the Dutch. Uh, right, which has 100% hold on uh, optical printing technology without which the entire ball game is not possible. China now controls about 15% of the market. Walk us through the global ecosystem and who does what uh, and, and, and who are the most critical players uh, in it for the audience to fully understand. Um, you know, you have to understand the ecosystem before you can do something about it. So if you take, for example, the type of chip that's the main processor inside of a, a new iPhone, uh, that chip will have been designed by a team of chip designers in the US, Europe, and Israel. Um, it was, was designed using software that's produced uh, largely by three firms, all based in the US, which dominate the market for chip design software. Then that design, which is like a, a file, is sent to a, a fabrication facility called a fab, which is a factory in which semiconductors are made uh, in Taiwan. Uh, where the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company produces 90% of the world's most advanced chips. But TSMC, the Taiwanese chip maker, uh, can only produce firms by uh, produce chips by using uh, manufacturing equipment, ultra-precise machine tools produced by uh, a handful of other companies, largely in the US, Japan, and the Netherlands, uh, without which it's impossible for any company to make advanced chips. And once TSMC makes that chip, uh, it's then uh, sent for uh, final assembly and packaging into an iPhone, which is uh, usually done in, uh, in China. So the supply chain for an advanced chip stretches from the US to Europe to Japan through Taiwan and China. And it's basically impossible to make an advanced chip today without using a fair amount of US and European uh, and Japanese machinery and software, even if that chip is in the end produced in Taiwan or in Korea. Um, uh, Jerry Sanders, the founder of AMD Advanced Micro Devices, which is one of the world's leading uh, companies, uh, used to say somewhat politically incorrectly that real men have fabs, right? That they're doing all of this work uh, in-house, saying that with an enormous amount of pride, just as the industry was going actually to fabless foundries, uh, right? Talk to us about how that evolution in the 1990s actually changed the ball game um, and made it right and 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 was part, you know, one of the themes in America losing the lead uh, in this technology. 
yeah, it really was a key transition point. And, and today, most of the biggest chip firms in the US, with a couple of important exceptions, only design chips. And so their manufacturing is done by TSMC or a small number of other firms, largely in East Asia. And that historically wasn't the case. Historically, companies would both design and manufacture in-house. But the trend over the past several decades has been to do just as much chip design, ever more impressive chip designing in the US, but to uh, turn to Taiwanese, Korean, or increasingly Chinese um, uh, firms to actually do the fabrication. And the effect of that has been to make the US very heavily reliant on fabrication capacity, uh, especially in Taiwan and, uh, and Korea. Uh, and today, the U.S. is unable to produce the most advanced processor chips onshore uh, and is reliant on one Taiwanese company, TSMC, and one right. South Korean company, Samsung, for this type of advanced fabrication. Uh, and, and we should point out, right, I mean, Intel has had its whole series of struggles uh, going from its foremost uh, position in the industry uh, and, and trying to regain uh, that uh, stature. Uh, Before I get to um, China's tactics and the CHIPS Act and all of that, there was this sense uh, that the state of the chip art, you know, a couple of years ago that that Gordon Moore, you know, Moore's Law, right, Uh, and and, uh, uh, named after uh, Intel co-founder Gordon Moore, who said that computing power would double roughly every 24 to 18 months. There was this sense that that was tapped out. Uh, But now it appears that actually we're going to be going into an era of Moore's law on steroids, right? So not only is the United States catching up, trying to catch up and get into the production game, but actually we're about to have a step change in in capability. And I think one of the most incredible statistics you use is right in uh, integrated circuit, you know, had four transistors on it. And now we're up to 12 billion transistors uh, on, on a chip. Talk to us about Moore's law and actually where this technology is going to be going and, and how the race will be fundamentally changing and the investment levels, which are already stratospheric, are, are going to get even more dramatic uh, for those who want to maintain the lead. Yeah, so, so Moore's Law is the crucial fact for understanding the chip industry. And it's it named after Gordon Moore, one of the two co-founders of Intel, who noticed in 1965 that the capacity uh, of a chip to compute was doubling on a regular basis. And this exponential growth, you know, it sort of sounds like a straightforward uh, uh, thing when you hear about it, but actually we're, we've really struggled to comprehend uh, exponential growth rates. Nothing else in our, uh, in our economy grows at an exponential rate. Um, you know, most, in most industries, productivity grows at two or 3% a year rather than doubling uh, every year, two, two years. I like to imagine what if planes flew twice as fast every two years, or if, houses were built twice as big every two years for the same price. Uh, That doesn't happen anywhere except for the chip industry. And what that's delivered is the amount of computing that we now take for granted in our smartphones that was simply inconceivable several decades ago. And that looks likely to continue with a caveat. Uh, It's pretty clear that we've got um, plenty of ways to advance the computing power on chips ahead of us, but the price uh, has stopped declining the way it used to. So it used to be the case that we get both additional computing uh, uh, in each new generation of chips at a lower price per uh, transistor. And over the past decade or so, that uh, cost decline has slowed. And so now what that means is we're having to pay more for uh, our incremental computing power. And that's something we're, we're very willing to pay for because computing is uh, so valuable, but it is an important change from where the industry uh, historically was over the past couple of decades. 
I want to take you to the tactics uh, the Chinese in particular have been using uh, to build their uh, capabilities and tactics that they're still uh, trying to employ, uh, which you lay out, right? I mean, there was this sense that the United States was asleep at the switch uh, while the Chinese also were stepping up their game. And indeed, not just the United States, but our allies and partners uh, worldwide as well, right? I mean, TSMC was was integral to setting up uh, fabrication facilities in China, for example, uh, right? Walk us through the ways, you know, the, you know at, at what point the glimmer went off uh, in, in China's mind to do this. You know, you note that the Chinese Communist Party was, you know, buy the first one, build the second one and compete on the third one is in the DNA of the party, uh, right? Walk us through the techniques uh, that the Chinese have so effectively used and the short-sightedness that we and our allies have had that have put us uh, in this vulnerable position. Well, I think to, to start, if you look at it from Beijing's side, what you'll find is that for a, a, a substantial portion of the last decade, China has spent more money importing chips than it spent importing oil. And so the Chinese believe that they're the ones who are very vulnerable uh, from a cutoff of chip supplies by the US or Taiwan or South Korea or others. And so for the last decade, they've been pouring tens of billions of dollars a year in an effort to domesticate this technology, make themselves more self-sufficient, and also uh, at the same time to try to take market share from leading tech firms in the United States and elsewhere to give China a larger role in the world's tech ecosystem. And so their strategies that the Chinese government and the industry have uh, deployed have have been varied. There's been, um, as as you might expect, cases of of, uh, technology theft, of intellectual property violations, but the, the key strategy that China's deployed is pouring tons and tons of money into its industry. That's what they've done above all. uh, And that's what they're continuing to do today. And so although in the US, the CHIPS Act, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in a bit, looks like the US is spending a lot of money on the semiconductor industry. In fact, China probably does something close to a CHIPS Act a year uh, in terms of government subsidies, if not even more than that. Uh, And so what that has done is dramatically distorted markets, letting Chinese firms build a ton of capacity to fabricate ships, threatening the profitability of uh, companies in other countries and uh, and politicizing the chip industry in a way that it really hadn't been in the past. And so all the moves that we've seen from the U.S. over the past couple of years to respond, to defend its own chip industry have largely been in reaction to these massive uh, subsidies from the Chinese side. And, and why is it uh, that the United States had, had such a um, laissez-faire attitude, and indeed our allies had a very laissez-faire attitude, buying Huawei equipment, um, not stopping transactions that should have been stopped, especially when we realized that actually it was the Chinese state or the PLA uh, that was doing the acquisitions. What, 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 why, why were folks so short-sighted about something that should have been so self-evident? Or was it just a belief that, hey, look, you know, th- these are commodities uh, and uh, markets will you know, self-regulate, if you will. Yeah, I think there there are th- are three reasons. I think part of it is that for a long time, uh, the the U.S. was hoping that China was going to be more cooperative and betting on a more cooperative strategy as a result. And obviously, that's changed a fair amount in the recent year, in recent years. But that that does explain part of why there was a laissez-faire attitude, as you say. I think second is that. Uh, in the U.S., we're used to differentiating between what are 
business or economic issues and what are political issues. And when other countries try to meld the two, we uh, generally struggle to, uh, to understand how we ought to respond. Uh, and certainly in the chip space, we've seen that. How do you respond, for example, when it's a uh, private equity firm that is set up by the Chinese government? Is it a private actor? Is it a public actor? Our frameworks for thinking about economics don't really apply very well there. And so the Chinese uh, government and the Chinese party have found that they can take advantage of the fact that our distinctions between state and uh, market don't apply uh, to them. I think the, the third aspect, which is something that we, we really shouldn't have let happen, is that policymakers in the U.S. for uh, much of the last 30 years didn't really think very much about microelectronics or semiconductors. They thought the U.S. was, I think they took for granted the U.S. Uh, tech position. They associated tech with Facebook and Google rather than the semiconductors on which all computing relies and uh, let our advantage slip to a certain degree. And I hope that, and I think we're beginning to see this, that over the past couple of years, uh, there's been a much more uh, uh, focus from policymakers on A, understanding the semiconductor industry and B, uh, making sure that the US industry uh, is, is not uh, being used to support uh, Chinese military development. And and the sense, right, as you as you just said, and and you uh, make clear in the book, was this uh, sense that somehow we could always outrun them, uh, that there was something special about what we were doing and something not special about what they were doing, and so you know they can't possibly uh, innovate. I remember this question coming up over the last twenty years, uh, that somehow the Chinese would just never be able to really uh, do it. Um, it looks like uh, the last several administrations have been working on trying to change the vector. Um, the Trump administration uh, did uh, start uh, to um, somewhat unevenly because the administration itself with Matt Pottinger and the team was tougher actually than the president uh, was in doing this, which was a complicating factor, whereas now it looks like the entire United States government is, is a lot more aligned uh, in terms of how it's, it's trying to pursue this. On the one hand, the Biden administration is embargoing the export of technology uh, to the Chinese, while on the other hand, also dramatically increasing American investment in education, engineering, and 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 the technology itself. Um, is this, Chris, too little, too late? And is it possible? So first, I just want to get your sense on the CHIPS Act and what it's trying to accomplish. And then my follow-up question is, is are the Chinese stoppable? First, give me your sense on the Chips Act and the embargoes and the impact they're likely to have. And then I've got a follow-up question on whether or not China actually has enough capability to to do this on its own, even if it's inefficient and costs it a lot of money. But let's take the first question first. Well, I, I do think the Chips Act and the uh, and the new export controls on the transfer of uh, chip technology to to China, both of them, I think, were the right moves. I think there's room to debate some of the specifics, but broadly speaking, uh, we were too blasé about the transfer of technology that is quite evidently militarily relevant to China. And I think we did take for granted a lot of the innovation capacity we had without funding it. And so I, now the burden is on the Biden administration to implement both of these actions effectively, and we'll have to uh, you know, see see what steps they take, but I think it's hard to disagree with the basic policy thrust of 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 both of these moves. I mean, to your second question of can can China catch up? I think you know we're going to have to wait and see. Um, but I think catch up is not a binary of either they succeed or they fail. It's how close do they get? 
And I think right now, if you look at the military position, uh, it's too close for comfort. And I think there's a pretty direct uh, linkage between the computing capabilities that a country has access to and their ability to apply those computing capabilities to military systems. Uh, and as the Chinese military has caught up faster than uh, the U.S. expected at every stage of the process, um, the fact that we were making this possible by allowing the transfer of advanced computing cap uh, technologies uh, made less and less sense. So will China be able to catch up uh, to U.S. capabilities uh, alongside allies like Japan and South Korea and others? You know, I, I'm skeptical that they'll be able to catch up uh, with the new restrictions making their uh, task even harder, but are they, are they already reasonably close and will they get a bit closer? I think they will. Uh, and so that means that you know, our, our work isn't done, I don't think, with the CHIPS Act and the latest controls. And there's got to be continued focus on this issue to grow the gap in capabilities over time. And, and what are both the obstacles and the opportunities uh, to, to do that, right? I mean, um, to your earlier point, uh, the Chinese have gone to MIT and to Caltech, uh, right? You have a great story uh, in the early days where, uh, you know, Stanford shared uh, with U.S. government approval uh, semiconductor technology with the Russians and the Russians built an entire industry, even though they sort of screwed it up on their own, uh, right? I mean, had they left it to the scientists to do what they wanted, the, the gap and, and did consistent industrial espionage. Uh, the gap would have actually been smaller, but they were able to produce enough chips to, to field uh, more sophisticated weapons. In the case of the Chinese, not only did they go to Caltech, MIT, uh, Cambridge, and every other good school on the planet, but then they worked for Intel, and then they you know, worked for TSMC and, and ran foundries, right? So what are, what are the things that we need to be doing going forward? And do the Chinese have enough of a base to be able to actually build on it more dramatically, to your point, right? They might not be as good as us, but you know, are are they actually going to get close? Well, you know, I think they they already are close in a number of different spheres. Um, Chinese chip firms can produce chips that are just a couple of generations behind what the most advanced facilities in Taiwan can produce. So that's already closer than almost every other country in the world. Um, so that, that already is, I, I think, is a sign of what the capabilities are. Now, when, when Chinese firms do that type of production, they do it using tools that are imported from the U.S. and Japan and the Netherlands. Right. Um, they do it using software imported largely from the U.S. So there's still a lot of uh, reliance on U.S. firms and that access to, to those types of tools and software is being uh, restricted by the uh, by the latest export controls. Um, but, but yes, I think we, we shouldn't be complacent um, about the fact that China is going to keep making advances. And I think it's a, it's a complex uh, analytical balance that must be struck because on the one hand, uh, it would be inaccurate to say that China's industrial policy is a great success story because in fact, the Chinese government wastes tons of money and has had just as many failures if not more than successes in its effort to fund its own chip industry. But if the scale of funding is large enough, and if the domestic market, as you mentioned, is large enough, even a small number of successes uh, might be um, meaningful in, in getting China closer to the cutting edge. Um, so I think we, we, we both must be simultaneously skeptical about the, uh, the overall efficacy of China's industrial policy while also recognizing that even if there 
batting average is not very good. They're still going to hit a couple of home runs and that given that they're already pretty close to us uh, in a lot of key technological metrics, that's going to be too close for comfort. Uh, can they develop the software uh, and the optical lithography tools on their own or, or steal them and, and manage to, um, you know, bridge these sanctions? Well, it's going to be hard. Um, I, I think theft in this industry is occasionally helpful, but it's, it's, it's never enough. Um, sort of on the, um, on the analogy that you know, if you steal a cake, you doesn't mean you know how to bake it. And even if you steal the recipe, there's something that differentiates me from you know, the world's best pastry chefs. And there's a lot of really unique knowledge that only exists in the small number of firms at the cutting edge of uh, the industry, which often is not even written down. It's sort of tacit knowledge in the minds of their engineers. So I, I, I'm certainly not someone who thinks that theft will be enough, but uh, will theft combined with a lot of government support combined with a, a real need uh, in this domestication drive, will it give China a strong impetus for, uh, for more efforts in this sphere? Yes. And will they have some successes? No doubt they will. Um, you know, it's really a question of, uh, uh, again, not of kind of, will they catch up in the, in the absolute, but will they make enough progress to let themselves produce some amount of chips domestically that they can't access abroad and then try to deploy those in uh, military systems over uh, some time? And so anyone who's writing off uh, the Chinese ship industry as, as, as hopeless at this point, I think is, is really misreading the capabilities that are already there. Um, how, you know, you, you, you said that, um, you know, the CHIPS Act is a, is a good start. We could debate uh, the specifics, but what are the obstacles and what more do we need to be doing? And what more do we need to be doing with our uh, allies and partners uh, where, you know, given these countries also have a tremendous amount of capability uh, on, on their own? What, what are the things we have to do at home? What are the things that we actually have to do in a much more concerted whole uh, with our allies and partners, whether in Asia, Europe, or elsewhere? Well, I think the first thing to realize is that although the U.S. government has a really important interest in the chip industry, the chip industry sells around 98% of its chips to private sector customers. Uh, and so the U.S. and its allies are hugely dependent on private sector firms selling to civilians uh, for their technological capabilities. And so when the U.S. military wants to acquire one of the most advanced ships, it goes to a private firm to produce that. Uh, and TSMC has capabilities that no one in the U.S. defense industrial base can match. Uh, so we're all reliant on this, this uh, semiconductor ecosystem that's mostly focused on civilian consumers. Even the military is reliant on it. And what that means is that we can't hope that the government on its own, or even to a large degree, is going to, um, is going to, to set up a cutting edge industry because it's only going to be um, the private sector that's going to have the, the ability to scale in a way that um, can sell uh, the vast numbers of devices that are needed for profitability. So step one, I think for the government is to find ways to be supportive of private industry, but realize that it's not going to do it all in-house. Um, I think step Two is to do so in a way um, that recognizes the challenge that China poses, but is also not so punitive uh, that U.S. firms are hurt in the process. And one of the really tough balances to strike right now is that U.S. chip firms and also the companies that make the machine tools that are used to manufacture chips, for both of them, China is an important market. And so there's a balance to be struck in making sure the most advanced types of tools and chips can't go to China, but also making sure that some of the really low-tech ones that 
are widely accessible can be sold uh, so that companies don't face financial losses and have to cut back in their R&D as a result. And so that, that's a balance that must be struck and it's you know hard to know where exactly the right uh, place to find that balance is. But I think realizing the extent to which it's not just about the government or the defense industrial complex, it's also about having a thriving and profitable private sector uh, is, is really important for the government and the policymaking process to realize. Um, I'm, I'm going to get to allies and partners at a second, but I mean, the question that folks ask is, um, can you buy what, you know, can you buy any chips uh, or uh, technologically sophisticated products or software uh, from the Chinese without constituting some degree of risk? Um, from, from your standpoint, where does that line lie? Because, you know, I mean, I've sort of joked about this. If the Chinese could weaponize lawn furniture, they would have, uh, right? And I, I want to get to the nature, broader nature of the competition in a moment. But are there things that we could buy and equipment that we can sell to the Chinese uh, that they would be happy doing, uh, given that they want to be at the apex of every technology they produce? Well, I, I think it is a, a balancing act. Again, there, there are certain types of chips that the U.S. produces, but that many other countries produce as well. And so if you were to cut off the sale of those chips to China, it's quite plausible someone else would step in and, and sell them. And so if, if that's the dynamic, then there's no sense in cutting them off. If, if they're much more advanced and there's only one or two producers in the world and they're all in the U.S. or a closely allied government, then it's a, a different um, story. So in, in terms of selling chips or tools to China, you've got to think about a, how advanced it is, but also B, if we cut this off, what will others do? Will China actually lose access or not? In terms of buying from China, um, you know, I, I think chip security is, it, is an important issue. And there's a lot of research being done right now. If you buy a chip, uh, given how complex advanced chips are, how do you know it's going to do exactly what you expect it to do and has been modified to do something else? Uh, and there have been a number of security vulnerabilities that have been discovered due to uh, flaws in chips rather than flaws in, in software. But I think if you look at most cybersecurity um, uh, vulnerabilities or most of the, um, the, the, the biggest risks that we've seen in the past uh, uh, you know, decade or two or three on, on the cyber front, it's mostly not about uh, fundamental vulnerabilities in the chips you're buying. It's about vulnerabilities in, in, in the software. And so when I think about security, I actually worry a lot more, a lot less about computing hardware and a lot more about computing software. So I think that's where we've seen it's uh, cheapest and easiest to exploit vulnerabilities. Um, how do we bring our allies and partners into this, uh, given the global nature of this and that some of our closest friends worldwide are integral uh, to our success in this uh, and, and, and countries in which the Chinese have historically taken an interest, uh, whether they're, they're Dutch, British, Israeli, or other? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge challenge because just as uh, China is far from self-sufficient in chip making, the U.S. isn't either. It's, it's the closest of any country, but we're still reliant on tools and chemicals and fabrication capacity in countries from Japan to the Netherlands to Taiwan. And so for the U.S. policy to be maximally effective, it's got to have at least a handful of allies on board. Japan, Taiwan, the Netherlands, ideally, um, would be the, the three most important. And I think you've seen over the past couple of years a similar trajectory in all of those countries in terms of assessing the challenge that China's military poses and that 
the ways in which China's ostensibly private firms are actually contributing to military modernization. Now, the, the, this, the magnitude of that threat perception is different in the U.S. versus in the Netherlands or in Japan, but I think everyone's going in the same direction in terms of modifying uh, their views to become more concerned about where China's headed. I think next to that, the U.S. has also uh, applied some pressure on uh, the relevant governments, diplomatic pressure, also economic pressure, to get them and their companies to comply with uh, with U.S. controls on the transfer of uh, chips and chip making tools to China. And because the U.S. is the biggest player in this industry, it has some scope to uh, to set unilateral limits and uh, be pretty confident that firms in other countries will opt into complying because they don't want to get in the wrong side of U.S. regulators. And so that's also had a big impact, for example, on uh, on pushing Taiwan's biggest chip maker, TSMC, into cutting off a number of uh, Chinese firms, such as Huawei, uh, from being able to produce in their facilities. Uh, You know, you you mentioned uh, Taiwan. Um, and and Taiwan uh, is uh, a close friend, uh, an ally. Uh, the president of the United States repeatedly uh, has has said that the United States would fight uh, for Taiwan. And yet, the central notion of the Chips Act is how the United States can become self sufficient in this. How does Washington improve? And which, by definition, means reducing the dependency on TSMC and on Taiwan uh, for some of these chips. How do we do this, Chris, in in a way that both helps us? But actually, doesn't hurt the Taiwanese because one can assume that, you know, if all of a sudden Taiwan was only five or ten percent rather than forty percent, uh, or uh, you know, fifty percent rather than ninety percent of the most advanced chips, all of a sudden people's interest maybe in defending Taiwan declines. How how do you strike that balance of serving our interests without making a vulnerable country more vulnerable? Um, to Chinese intimidation? Well, my sense is that the U.S. has a a lot of different reasons to want to defend Taiwan from Chinese coercion or or military pressure, and and chips are just one and probably not even the most important um, of them. It's worth remembering the U.S. also supported Taiwan's defense, uh, you know, dating back to the the 1950s when Taiwan had no electronics industry and it was even before the first ship was invented. Um, So the U.S. has, has, has been with Taiwan in this respect for a long time. Uh, and so I don't think it's right to, to, to say some people in Taiwan worry that if Taiwan's chip industry becomes less important, that the U.S. will actually be less interested. Um, and in fact, I think the dynamic might actually be the opposite, that the uh, more advantage the U.S. has in microelectronics vis-a-vis China, the more capable uh, the U.S. military will be. Uh, and therefore, the more able will be to, to deter uh, China or to defend uh, against an attack. And so I think Taiwan actually has a lot of aligned incentives here for specific companies, uh, specific investments. There's a bit of competitive um, aspect to this. But actually, if you think about Taiwan's foreign policy and America's foreign policy, I think there's a fair amount of alignment um, that the, the sort of competitive aspects of the companies involved don't necessarily reflect. Well, one of the questions I just want to go back uh, on uh, for a moment is you talked about vulnerabilities. Um, the Biden administration has been uh, pressing uh, both hardware and software bills of origins and materials, uh, given that actually there is an enormous amount of Chinese, um, there are an extraordinary number of Chinese chips that are in the ecosystem where they're at the sub, 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 sub uh, contractor level. And then eventually we're the part number of a major contractor. Um, Same thing with software that may have come from Russian and Chinese uh, libraries. Um, 
are our vulnerabilities so big now, Chris, that they're too difficult to get our arms around if foundationally, right? The chips are a commodity. The one subcontractor built a subsystem and, and then by the time, you know, it could end up in some of the most advanced weaponry we have and be compromised. Um, is, is, is this particular barn door a little bit too late or too difficult to close? Well, I think you, you got to think about the, the scale of um, risks that need to be managed. Um, you know, if there's a, a single Chinese chip in a, in a given system, um, does that constitute a risk? Well, it, it could, but under certain circumstances. So A, does China know that that chip is in um, a given system? B, what capabilities does that chip have in a given system? Um, if it malfunctions, how critical is it or not? Uh, and so as you start thinking through those questions, not every imported part is necessarily a, a risk that seems um, super critical. And it helps you focus on the ones that actually are really critical. And you want to make sure you've got a whole lot of clarity over um, over the origins and and that the the product is designed in exactly the way you expect it to be designed. Um, but but I think focus is is crucial here. Just given the number of Chinese origins uh, components in all sorts of systems, whether defense or not, um, focusing solely on a uh, a national origin definition of risk is is going to require a whole lot of effort that will prevent us from focusing on what's the key risk we need to mitigate. Uh, and that might not necessarily be uh, uh, related to the specific chip in question, especially if it's a, a, a second or third uh, tier chip far down in the system and might not be critical to the, the system's operation. So I, I'm a bit hesitant to, to focus solely on on the country of origin when, when assessing the risk in a given system, because there's a lot of other uh, categories that, that play into it. And, and I think that what that means is that no, the, the horse hasn't left the barn because we can still think pretty carefully about where are the places of, of, of most risk in a given system? How do you mitigate those in particular, um, even if we can't uh, make sure that every given component is from a, a company or a country that we've got complete trust over? Uh, one of your specialties is economic competition, and, and the big question uh, that everybody, both in the national security but also in the economic uh, ecosystems, is what that balance point is of cooperation, competition uh, with China, in part because it's I, – I, I'm not sure even history has an analog uh, to the world's largest nation that's economically uh, extremely prosperous and powerful, um, integrating everything that it does to deliver national security outcomes. Again, I mean, if it could weaponize lawn furniture, it probably would. And it, it might actually have a plan for weaponizing lawn furniture, uh, for all we know. Um, what is the nature of the competition, right? I mean, uh, the uh, last president was uh, talking a lot about tariffs. Uh, many of those tariffs uh, were not lifted. Uh, tariffs impose costs on us uh, as opposed to necessarily penalizing uh, the person you're imposing them on. We want to be able to do trade, right? I mean, we want the Chinese to buy Boeing jetliners. Uh, Boeing hasn't sold a jetliner to the Chinese since 2017. Um, ultimately, what is the philosophy, Chris, we need um, at an important time where we don't want to give strategic technological assistance uh, to a nation that has basically painted a giant bullseye and is very candid that it wants to knock us off our perch uh, militarily and otherwise, while at the same time 
not gravely damaging our economies. And this is a discussion, whether it's Olaf Scholz and the German cabinet or France, Britain, uh, and even India, uh, which has very strong trade ties, uh, as well as security concerns with the Chinese. What's the mindset that's required? And what are sort of historical markers that might be able to help us uh, in this in this phase? Well, I, th- I think you're right that the economic and the technological competition, they've been getting a lot more attention in recent years. Um, and they are uh, more complex in terms of searching for the right analogy to understand them. But, you know, I think actually at the core, the, the military balance is really, uh, really key. And, and one of the things that I think is striking is if you look at, at as just as U.S. concern about the economic and tech competition has accelerated. At the same time, that's when the military balance has began really deteriorating from the U.S.'s perspective. And in my sense is very much that if that weren't the case, if um, the U.S. still had the uh, scale of edge it had over China 20 years ago, there'd be a lot less concern about, well, this particular technology or that particular company, um, because we would know that China didn't have the capability to redraw the map in the Asia-Pacific region. And, and now that's unclear. Um, there's there's substantial uncertainty about what the geopolitical balance will look like in 10 years time. And that makes people question not only military and geopolitical factors, but also how economic and technological and other inputs to the geopolitical balance um, are playing out. And so it'd actually be a much more straightforward uh, economic and tech relationship with China if the military balance remained what it was, if China hadn't tried to build up these capabilities to threaten uh, Taiwan. There would be a lot less concern, I think, in the U.S., but also in China's neighbors about what the ramifications of its economic rise or technological um, capabilities are. But because we've seen this vast expansion in uh, China's military power, people do raise questions about, well, if China's economy grows or its technology capacity grows in this or that sphere, will that inevitably feed into uh, China's military as well? Um, the Biden Xi meeting. Anytime there's uh, a meeting like this, obviously voices in Washington can become very shrill. Uh, oh my God, President is caving, and and what have you. From from your perspective and what you know about the meeting, but more broadly, what's the balance point of making sure you know right? I mean, doing the things that you have to do to prepare and to continue deterring, but also sort of historical examples, right? I mean, everybody talks about the Thucydides trap, uh, which uh, Graham Allison uh, has uh, talked about and written about extensively and many people discuss. The, the balance point to getting the relationship right, because even during the height, at the height of the Cold War, we were still communicating and indeed in some respects behind the scenes, sometimes cooperating with the Soviets, even if publicly we were very antagonistic toward one another. Although the, the Soviets are in a completely different bucket, right, uh, economically and otherwise than the Chinese. Yeah. But still, what, what's the right approach uh, to this to cooperate where you can uh, and, and not where you can't? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I, I think in in U.S. discussion, too often we we mix diplomacy for meaning the absence of of competition in other spheres, and so we we see choices between diplomacy or military competition, for example. And I think history suggests that that both strategies work best when combined. That if you've got a strategy to maximize your geopolitical position, you've got a strategy to build up your military power, then that's when you're also likely to have the most diplomatic leverage. Uh, and so, so rather than trying to choose between the different strategies, I would say do, do them simultaneously, um, but don't try to negotiate before you've had a chance to build up 
um, build up your, uh, your position, which will produce the leverage that you need in negotiations. But certainly the, the lessons uh, from the Cold War were that when done at the right time with the right preparation, not in terms of preparation for the meeting, but in terms of preparation of building national power, negotiations could be very useful uh, in, in getting the results that you want. But if they're seen as an alternative to uh, building up power or deploying it, then they're unlikely to produce any sort of uh, results at all, or the results are more likely to be concessions rather than um, achieving anything. Uh, last uh, question. You've been very kind and, and patient. Uh, you know, what we ask everybody on this series for one example of really good uh, strategy that should serve as an inspiration or uh, and, and bad strategy uh, that should serve uh, as a warning. Uh, what are your examples of both good strategy and bad strategy? Well, I think like many people probably listening to this podcast, I've been following very closely the, the Russia-Ukraine war over the past um, now nine months. And, and it seems like uh, there's a, a case study of both good and bad strategy on uh, on both sides. The Ukrainians uh, knowing uh, their capabilities uh, uh, better than anyone and, and understanding Russia's weaknesses have executed, I think, uh, their strategy quite brilliantly. And, and, and the Russians, uh, although the military was, I think, weaker in a number of ways that we didn't fully appreciate in advance, in addition to having a weaker military, has also just executed a, a strategy that uh, seems... Uh, quite naive from from the outset and hasn't really adapted to the changing circumstances uh, very well at all. So uh, this does seem to be like a case study in, in, in multiple parts of, of good and bad strategy on both the Ukrainians and the Russian side thus far. And, and just very briefly, because you're as expert a scholar in China as you are uh, Russia, uh, one of the foundational tenets that we had throughout the Cold War was to keep these two separate, right? The late, great Peter Rodman used to repeat that as best we can, we have to keep them separate. And indeed, we were more flexible toward the Chinese or more flexible toward the Russians uh, throughout history in order to, to do that. Now they're saying partnership without limits. And right, nuclear strategist Chad, Admiral Chaz uh, Richard, uh, the U.S. strategic commander, said, look, the three-way nuclear deterrent calculus becomes uh, much more difficult. What's the way that Washington has to navigate two of these powers that, if aligned, prove particularly and even more problematic? Indeed, if they align also with North Korea as they are and with Iran, it makes the dynamic even more complicated. What's, what's the right way to navigate this? I think the first thing to, to say is that the U.S. shouldn't overestimate uh, its capabilities to, to drive wedges between Russia and China. I, I think people often look back at the Nixon and Kissinger opening of relations with China, but that, that was after the Russians and Chinese had already driven a wedge between themselves. They were they'd been at right. on the brink of war in 1969 uh, before Kissinger's first visit. So certainly U.S. diplomacy was involved, but the circumstances were ripe in a way that they're not uh, ripe right now. And so I, I'm always a bit hesitant when. Um, when I hear people talk about let's find ways to drive the Russians and Chinese apart. I think that's a fine idea in theory, but what does it actually mean in practice? Um, what, what actual tools we have available? And I think when you start thinking through them, they're more limited than uh, one might like. Chris, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. We know you were very tight on time and appreciate you spending it with us. Thanks so very much. Great. Thanks for having me.